From CBC Radio, this is Wiretap with Jonathan Goldstein. Today's show, Messiah 83. was a young, idealistic rabbi from Australia. A handsome man, he wore his black Stetson at a jaunty angle and combed his beard into a sharp point, making him look a bit like the evil rabbis of Jewish folktales. But Rabbi Nachman was not evil. He was pious, and his spade of a beard, rather than making him look satanic, made him look intelligent, as well as aerodynamic. Nachman was stationed in Canada by the head Rebbe, a man so holy that with the nod of his head, he could command a thousand septuagenarian Orthodox Jews into a hora. And not one of those slouchy, lackadaisical horas either, but the air-punching, beard-flying kind. The kind of hora that scares small children. So when the Rebbe sent Nachman as an emissary to our neighborhood in the suburbs of Montreal to recruit lapsed Jews, he didn't argue. Nachman's first move was getting to know the Jewish community. So he spent his first weeks in town going door-to-door, inspecting mezuzahs, the little religious cases on doorway frames that let the world know there's a Jewish family inside. I was 14 that first time he showed up at our house. When we opened the door, he was already inspecting our mezuzah. By way of introduction, he told us that the parchment inside the mezuzah had to be changed every few years, because if it was in any way torn or damaged, the whole thing was worthless. He said the outside of a mezuzah was like a person. It was just a shell. But the handwritten parchment inside was what really counted. It was the soul. And he wanted to see what shape ours was in. My father was uncomfortable with the idea of a stranger messing around with our mezuzah. Just the same, Rabbi Nachman went to work taking it off the doorframe with a screwdriver. Opening it up, he revealed our ornate silver-plated mezuzah to be completely empty. No parchment, no nothing. It's a good thing I came by when I did, Nachman said. I think he's full of crap with that parchment stuff, said my father later that night over dinner. And who goes looking into other people's mezuzahs? It's invasive and I was fine without knowing. If I see him here again, I'll throw him out on his beard. My father was not one for synagogue. He complained about the hard wooden pews, the incomprehensibility of the Hebrew language, and the way that synagogue, rather than inspiring him, made him feel like he was being suffocated in a claustrophobic coffin that reeked of old man smell. But it wasn't only that. My father just didn't like being told what to do. By anyone's standard, our family was Jewish, but we played by our own rules. We would not eat ham, but we would eat bacon. Bacon was somehow the more Jewishy pig meat, while ham was just so... Bing Crosby. While we did not keep the Sabbath, we did go to synagogue on Yom Kippur. We begged God to forgive our sins and inscribe us in the Book of Life. We did so while glancing at our watches every 30 seconds. We did not speak Hebrew, but we did bandy about Yiddish words, half of which were made up, like my mother's word for the TV remote, something she called Der Pushke. There were certain restaurants that we went to, not because they were kosher, but because they were kosher style, which is sort of like the apartment across the hall from kosher. Whereas keeping kosher required rigorous observation of rules, 
keeping kosher style only required a Jerusalem napkin holder on the table and the restaurant's name written out front in large Hebraic calligraphy. We did not study Torah, but we did watch the Ten Commandments every year on TV. Even when the long journey through the desert became unendurable, we stuck it out. We believed enough for that. A couple days after that first meeting in the doorway of our house, Rabbi Nachman called up and invited me to a Purim party for kids at his house. I tried to back off. The idea of partying at a rabbi's house smacked of paradox. But Nachman would not take no for an answer, so I agreed to go and celebrate my people's not being murdered by the evil Haman with the rest of young Montreal Jewry. Arriving at his house a couple nights later, I found a group of perplexed-looking preteens, just like me, sitting in a circle on bridge chairs. Rabbi Nachman handed out Jewish loot bags. Each one contained two nickels to give to charity, shards of stale Passover gum, and a homentosh wrapped in saran wrap. A homentosh is a prune-filled triangular cookie made to symbolize, depending on whose version is to be believed, either Haman's triangular-shaped hat or Haman's triangular-shaped dirty ears. The idea of eating a pastry made to replicate a Jew-hating mass murderer's facial feature struck me as absurd and wrong. Something like eating a little licorice Hitler's mustache. Just the same, I ate the hamantash and then chewed my stick of Passover gum, which might have been spearmint, might have been cinnamon, who knew? And then after the loot bags, the cherry cola, and the Jewish knock-knock jokes, we got on to more serious subjects. It was that evening at the Purim party that I would learn of the Mashiach, the Jewish Messiah. The Mashiach will be a holy, humble, and wise man, and once he chooses to reveal himself, said Nachman, there will be no more hardship and pain. This is how it worked. First, there would be a blast from a shofar that all the world would hear. Then, the Mashiach would appear, riding a white horse. He would revive the dead. He would put an end to work. He would put an end to death. It would all be just like the days of Eden. He would show up just like that. He could show up in any second. Even now, cried the rabbi, pounding the dining room table with his fist. He could show up at this very second. The rabbi taught us to chant a song called, We Want Mashiach Now. He said the louder we sang it, the quicker the Mashiach would come. A Jew had to show moxie, the rabbi said. He had to demand the coming of his Messiah. The rabbi got us all really worked up, and we sang that song as loud as we could. We yelled our heads off. It felt like the Mashiach would walk right in through the front door at any second, and just like someone's angry dad, tell us all to shut up already. The idea of the Mashiach ushering in a new age of relaxation not only appealed to me, but it also made immediate sense. After 14 years of hard labor, going to school, putting up with my family, it was finally payday. And somehow, that just seemed right. Once the Mashiach came, everyone would get to just lie around on the sidewalk all day, eating mangoes, draped only in wet sheets like the whole world was one big Turkish bath. Trees would bear roast duck, and I'd get to see dead aunts and uncles. I'd probably also be a lot taller during the days of the Mashiach. After that first Purim party, the rabbi started calling my house on a regular basis, personally requesting my presence at synagogue. 
and so I began attending almost every Friday. Overall, I found synagogue boring and impenetrable, but the Mashiach stuff, that I could really sink my teeth into. Whereas believing in the importance of Torah and prayer was a matter of blind faith, the Mashiach was something that made sense to me on a gut level. I would tell my father about the Mashiach and ask him if he had ever heard about this kind of thing. What did he make of it, I'd ask. Didn't it sound wonderful? What are you, a religious nut now? he asked. The man who drives the cart knows why he makes the journey, I said, quoting the rabbi. The horse who pulls the cart only knows that he is being whipped. Are you calling me a whipped horse? demanded my father. I looked at him, shaking my head with pity. It was a move I had seen the rabbi do, and I liked it. I liked it a lot. It must have been hard for my father to watch his 14-year-old shake his head in pity at him. It must have been like being sucker-punched in the groin by a baby. When I was a little kid, talking with my father, God was my favorite subject. Sometimes my father would say that he believed there was something up there. A kindness, a big face with a warm smile. Other times when I asked him about God, he would say it was for suckers. Then he'd laugh and my mother would tell him to shut up. Now talking with my father about God was infuriating. That man refused to use common sense. When I went to synagogue as a kid, he said, we didn't talk about the second coming. That stuff's for the Gentiles. We never had a coming, I said. This is our first coming. As well as a look of pity, I had started to borrow Rabbi Nachman's intonation when I spoke of matters religious. I would often pound the table using my fist like a gavel, just as I had seen him do. I smacked the table hard enough to make my father's cup of instant coffee rattle in its saucer. Then I deployed Rabbi Nachman's patented, I pity you, look. My father met my gaze with his patented, pal, you've gone off the deep end this time, look. I started to go to Rabbi Nachman's almost every Friday night after synagogue for Sabbath dinner. At the kitchen table at home, all we talked about was where to get the cheapest honeydew and who made the moistest buckwheat cake. At Rabbi Nachman's, we spoke of spiritual matters. We talked about God and angels, golems and dibbics. It made me feel deep. One night at the rabbi's, the conversation got around to how we could never really know whether we truly existed or not. How do you know you're here right now and not dreaming? The rabbi asked, smacking the table with his fist. For a second, I thought of offering him proof in the form of a glass of seltzer water thrown in his face, but I just wasn't the type. Instead, I said, I think, therefore I am, which I thought was a pretty smart thing for a 14-year-old to come up with. And what is thought? shrieked the rabbi, a sidelock clamped in each of his fists. Rabbi Nachman said that the only way you could know anything was through Torah. How do you know that you exist? Torah. How do you know God exists? Torah. I asked him how he knew Torah existed, and he smiled. When you eat of its eternal fruit, he said, you will know it exists more deeply than your very soul. Then he shot me his patented, one day you'll know, look. When we were finished eating, we sang a rousing version of We Want Mashiach Now. This time, I thought, the Mashiach has got to be really, really close at hand, because I could feel it. He was just around the corner. He was pulling up to the curb on his white horse, 
the Mashiach was fumbling the keys into the front lock. At this point in my life, I felt the imminence of the Mashiach so fully that I took to sleeping in my sweatpants, just in case I heard the shofar blast and had to run into the street at a moment's notice. He could even come now, Rabbi Nachman said. Even now. It was like waiting for the phone to ring. I walked home from the rabbis that night, looking up at the stars. I thought about how big it all was. Sometimes, especially when I was leaving Rabbi Nachman's and when I was thinking about the Mashiach, I felt like somehow it all made perfect sense. Just like a crack baby is born into the world addicted to something that it cannot yet define, I had been born with an addiction to the Mashiach. Thanks to Rabbi Nachman, I finally knew what I had been jonesing for. The Mashiach would end the mystery and the loneliness. There would be hugging in the streets, warmth, real warmth between strangers. People would understand one another's hearts. The inevitability of the Mashiach's coming made a sense to me that was more perfect than any sense I had ever known. My mother started forcing my father to attend synagogue with me once in a while. Now, as I've said, my father was not one for synagogue. But just the same, the Jewish holiday of Sukkot was upon us, and my father agreed to attend a party at the rabbis. Sukkot commemorates the passage of the Jews through the desert, and it is celebrated by actually building a hut, or a Sukkot, just like the ones that Jews inhabited during their exodus from Egypt. We were to go to the rabbis and sit in the Sukkot in his backyard. My mother told my father he was not allowed to return home for an hour. When we got to the Sukkot, it was packed, standing room only, over a hundred Jews shoulder to shoulder in a little shack. Rabbi Nachman, seeing me enter, called me and my father over. He brought out two bridge chairs so we could sit beside him at the head of the table. He then doffed his Stetson and put it onto my head. The Israeli man beside me was wearing a cardboard yarmulke that made him look like a counterman at a kosher hot dog restaurant. He poured me a plastic cup full of vodka. I leaned my elbows onto the table the way I imagined Bogart would if he were celebrating the Sukkot. Since an incident at a Toronto bar mitzvah where my father drank four Tia Marias in a row and taught my teenage cousins this kung fu dance in the synagogue parking lot, my mother had made liquor contraband in our house. So when Rabbi Nachman started pouring my father shot after shot of Crown Royal, the acceptance my father felt from his Jewish brethren was poignant. As long as the drinks flowed, my father sang religious songs right along with everyone else. That night was the first time I had ever drunk liquor, and I was very excited about it, because booze allowed you to see that the world was really all spirit that the soul was always just about ready to peep out from behind everything. Booze was all about the truth, and it made you feel like, just a little bit, that the Mashiach had already arrived. My father, sober, would have considered all that Mashiach talk to be stuff for the Hare Krishna, but just then, the booze flowing like manna, he was very open to new ideas. Since it was my first time drunk, it was like that little Sukkot was being hurled through space, passing planets, and, in its way, defending the galaxy. 
I can only remember the evening as a series of fade-ins and fade-outs. First we were singing songs and pounding the table. Then we were dancing a horror with our hands waving in the air like fun-loving flappers. Then someone was telling a very serious story about how Judaism had changed their life. And we all silently picked honey cake crumbs off the tablecloth and drank solemnly from our plastic cups. I remember telling the rabbi's wife that she looked a lot like this girl that I liked in school. I remember someone trying to poke a slice of melon into the smile on my face. I remember at one point being brought by two yeshiva boys to the bathroom to throw up. And then, once over the toilet, only spitting. I remember being told by the Israeli in the cardboard skullcap that getting bar mitzvah didn't make you a man. That it took more than that. That it took vodka. Lots and lots of vodka. Then I remember singing We Want Mashiach Now. It was the craziest rendition of the song yet. It involved some of the men in the far corner doing a sort of impromptu slam dance that caused the bamboo poles that made up the Sukkot roof to start tumbling onto our heads. But no one seemed to notice. We were singing so loud and pounding the table so hard that it was like something big was going to happen. We were demanding our Messiah. I looked over at my father to see if he could feel it too, but he was just sitting there, staring into his cup of whiskey. Then, in the middle of all the singing and the pounding, my father, who, more than being simply drunk, was what I like to call Toronto Bar Mitzvah Kung Fu Dance Drunk, stood up and told everyone there that he had an announcement to make. Everyone kept singing and pounding, so my father repeated again. I have something I've got to say, this time yelling it at the top of his lungs. The rabbi stood up and put his hands onto my father's shoulders, trying forcefully to push him back down into his seat, where he could sit back and continue to enjoy the vibe. But my father was really set on making his announcement, the content of which I could not possibly imagine. He waved his arms around and continued to shout the room down. I've got something I've got to say, he said again. Finally, people quieted down. My father drank the remaining whiskey in his cup, looked around the room, and said, All night, Rabbi Nachman's been saying that we have to demand our Mashiach. Well, here goes. My father stepped back and positioned himself right before the rabbi. He then extended his finger right into the rabbi's face and said, Reveal thyself. I command you to reveal thyself. There was stunned, drunken Canadian silence. It was the kind of silence that pulsates and makes your Adam's apple feel about to explode. The kind that makes the tips of your fingers hurt and the air feel thick and full of something like sinews and veins. I put you on the white horse myself my father said, reaching for the rye bottle. My father had succeeded in turning the Sukkot into a den of sacrilege. On the way home, I zigzagged down the street, shadow boxing and climbing trees. My father stumbled along behind me. I would only realize later that my father was braver than anyone at the Sukkot that night for saying what he did. We all had felt the same way, I'm sure, but we were just too afraid to express or even acknowledge it. The rabbi really was a great candidate for the Messiah. He had all the messianic qualities. 
Plus, he was photogenic, which couldn't hurt. I know I had, at various moments, envisioned a kind of Scooby-Doo-style demasking, where he admitted that he was just waiting for the right moment to reveal himself, that being the Messiah was all about timing. The next morning, I would experience my first ever hangover. I would wake up feeling sick and depressed in a way that would later become a cornerstone of certain times in my life. But right then, it felt adult. It felt like the price one paid for a little bit of salvation. You heard Jonathan Goldstein reading his story, Messiah 83.